following resource is from Welford Baptist Church. Good morning, Welford. Good to see you. It's a good day. And as a pastor, every time uh, the church I was pastoring had baptism, there's something just special about it, you know. I believe the, the Spirit gave an extra touch and all, and He has this morning as well. Uh, good to have uh, all the family of a candidate that was baptized this morning, and also Brian Jones, a council member of Welford. Stand up, Brian. He's visiting with us this morning, and I think this is your second time since I've been interim here, right? Amen. Well, we appreciate you making time for us. Matter of fact, there's a good many people we just need to say hello to. So let's do that this morning. If you're near any of our guests this morning, speak to them and, uh, and include too. If you find someone better looking than you are, greet them, okay? Let's stand together. <laughs> greet somebody. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that moment. And choir, you hit a home run this morning. And I just enjoyed not only the song and your enthusiasm, but you had fun. I could just tell that by your faces. And that's what it ought to be, fun praising the Lord. We're going to continue in my series on the book of Acts this morning. And today we're going to look at Acts chapter 11 and skip over to a few verses in Acts 13. And this is about a church that got it right, okay? What's it been now? Seven, eight years ago, I had uh, my knees replaced. And the first one was really a piece of cake. And it went so well, I thought, I'm going to get the second one done too. Because I was, I, I was just in so much pain and I limped everywhere. And people were saying, what's wrong with you? And I said, it's my knees. So I had them replaced. First one went well. The second one, oh, man, if I had that one done first, I wouldn't have had the second one done. But anyway, the surgery was over. It was successful. Uh, the reason that it was so hard, the surgery or the healing was so hard is I had bone spurs on the second knee somewhere in there, and they had to replace those. So I guess they knocked them off and anyway, left me with a lot of pain. And I was coming out, and Jane and I were talking about this this past week. I was coming out of uh, uh, the, the sleep, you know, they put you in. And I was groggy, and Jane and my daughter, Carolee, were there, and they were saying, you okay? And this is what happened. And said, Howard, uh, they, you had some bone spurs, and they had to take those off, and it's probably going to hurt more this time. Bone spurs. And I was so groggy, I was trying to say that or agree with them, and I was saying, spone burrs, spone burrs. And I never did get it right at that moment, but I can today. And we want to get things right in our lives, do we not? And in our spiritual lives, we want to get things right as well. And this is what we're going to look at today. A church that didn't get it 100% right, no church does. But for the most part, 
they got this thing called church right. And I think there's some lessons in it for you and I today as well. It all begins with about God, and God loves change. God loves changing lives. That's what he loves. And he loves the most is just that, someone who comes to him in faith and in repentance and allowing him to change. And that was a model this morning through the baptism. However, many times, and for most of us, if not all of us, we resist those changes sometimes, do we not? God presses us to change and to grow and to move forward in our faith, but there are times that we just step on the brakes. Let me give to you as we begin this morning some principles about change. There's three of them, okay? Number one, we must realize some changes are inevitable, okay? They're just going to happen, just going to happen. There's a philosopher one time said this, if you agree with him, there's nothing permanent in life except change. Do you agree with that? It's pretty much true, is it not? So to keep up with our times, we have to change with the times as well. And to keep in step with God's plans for our lives, we must let him change us. Number two, any change requires adjustment. And adjustments I found in my life, and I bet you have in your lives too, adjustments are many times uncomfortable. It's awkward for me. It's really awkward. It's embarrassing sometimes to ask my children about things on my smartphone because I'm not smart enough to use my smartphone, you know. Change will test our flexibility. It tests our good judgment for not all changes are necessarily positive. Thus, third point, each change must be examined that we have to make in our lives. So as we filter the current events through the word of God, and what we perceive as changes in our life, in our spiritual faith through the Word of God, we can discover what will help, and we can also discover what will hinder the communication of the gospel. But we need to be careful that we don't confuse our preferences, what we want, with Scripture, and use our options as the grid for all these changes. Do you remember Acts chapter 10 from last week? It ended with Peter staying with Cornelius, a Roman centurion in, in Caesarea. Peter was a good Jew. He was a Christian Jew now, but God opened the door to the faith to the Gentiles, and he's going to use Peter. And he did use Peter to do that by sending him to Caesarea, to this Gentile Roman officer's house. And there, a little mini Pentecost occurred. The Holy Spirit came down, and faith was opened to to Gentiles. That's why you and I are here today. And this change that occurred that day in Peter's life with the Gentiles, it changed him forever. Christ had broken down the walls of both men's hearts, uh, Peter and Cornelius. And they, he united them as brothers in Christ. I can only imagine after that time and, and the few days afterwards as Peter was staying in the house of Cornelia that they would sit down and eat pork barbecue together, you know. Peter returned to Jerusalem after that, 
met with the disciples, the leadership of the church in Jerusalem, all Christians, okay, Christian Jews, shared with them what occurred, and immediately the finger pointing and the wagging tongues began. Shame on you, Peter. Shame on you for, for uh, uh, socializing with a Gentile. Shame on you even more for going into his house. How could you, Peter? Have you turned liberal on us? Institutional Judaism was brought into the church. The Christian church was for Jews only. Acts 11, this was the end of the discussion. After Peter shared everything that God did in the house of Cornelius, and I'll have to hand it to the leadership of the church, they listened to him. This is what the Bible says in verse 18 of chapter 11. And when they, the leadership, heard this, they ceased their objections, and they praised God, saying, So then, God has granted the repentance that leads to life, even to the Gentiles. And from then on, the door was open to those who were not Jews. So like the Jerusalem Christians... Let's examine change in the light of God's word, but always keep in mind one point, both now in this sermon and in our lives, okay, that some things in Christianity, some things in our faith are absolutely absolute, and others are flexible. The absolutes are the virgin birth of Jesus, his sinlessness, he never sinned, his death and resurrection and some other basics of our faith. They never change. They're absolute, all right? But the ways that we can express these truths to our culture, they can change. And there are times when communicating these truths must flex to meet the needs of our ever-changing world. Guys, could you imagine 20 years ago wearing a casual shirt to church? Times have changed, hadn't they? Even some of you said, Pastor, why don't you just wear a golf shirt? You know, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> but God's ancient truths are as relevant today as the day they were written. Now, the plan, God's plan for this, all right? He knew it was coming. It goes all the way back to chapter 1 of Acts, verse 8. Here's the plan. Jesus told his disciples, but you, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem. Okay, they've done that. And in all Judea and all Samaria and to the ends of the earth. The Christian church was staying inside the walls in Jerusalem. They weren't venturing out, Okay. But now a man comes on the scene by the name of Saul. He uh, was there when the first Christian was martyred. His name was Stephen. He held the coats of those who were stoning Stephen, okay? The next chapter, chapter 9, he was confronted by Jesus Christ. His name was changed forever as well. And soon after that, he came to Jerusalem. He began to share and to preach there, but those walls went back up. The average Jew in Jerusalem, they turned against him. There was a plot to kill him. So the Christians there in Jerusalem said, Paul, we're sending you home to Tarsus. You need to get out of town. And he did. 
With Paul sequestered in Tarsus and the other Jewish Christians still reluctant to share the gospel with Gentiles, how do you think God's, God is going to push them out of Jerusalem to reach out? Hmm? How's he going to do this? One word, you won't like it, persecution. And when Stephen was stoned to death, a great persecution rose up. Listen to it in Acts 11, verse 19. Those who had been scattered, those who left Jerusalem because of the persecution that took place over Stephen, went as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, speaking the message, sharing Christ to no one but Jews. Now, these Christians essentially made their way to Antioch in Syria, which, no, which was north of, of uh, Jerusalem, up on the coast of, of the Mediterranean Sea. So it was, the faith went as far up there, and also Antioch was near Tarsus, where Paul was living. Let me share with you just a moment about Antioch, okay? Then we're going to get into the meat here. Sometimes people who are moving out of the community, moving to another state, another city, whatever, job-wise, whatever it is, they'll ask me about what type of church. Pastor, what type of church should I find and join, okay? And I'll tell them my thoughts on what kind of church they should find and, and seek and, and join. And, you know, it should be a Bible-loving, Bible-teaching church. It should be a, a, a warm congregation that loves Christ and loves others. There should be solid ministries in place, especially if you have a family, much like Welford here, okay, for children and youth and all. Among other things, it should be a church like the Church of Antioch. It's a great example of a church, again, that really did things right. Antioch was a Roman city. It was the jewel of Asia in the Romans' eyes, all right? It was near the coast, Mediterranean coast. It was the seat of Roman political power in that area. The culture was Greek. It was very cosmopolitan. There was people from all over the ancient world living there. But it was known for its rampant immorality, and chief among those was the worship of a, of a Roman god by the name of Daphne, all right? A temple was erected to Daphne about five miles out of town, and it was staffed by temple prostitutes. So to go worship Daphne, you hooked up with a prostitute, okay? So that's a dark backdrop, isn't it? And it's a dark backdrop for the believers uh, 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 the, that became so obvious in their faith that the neighbors started calling them Christians. And that's my first point is they were Christians in this immoral city. This rep city had a reputation for giving nicknames to people. And when the emperor Julian came to the city of Antioch wearing a beard, they nicknamed him the goat. He probably didn't appreciate that, but it stuck. And the people of Antioch became increasingly aware of the followers of Jesus Christ and their lifestyle that they began calling them Christians. Now, the I-A-N at the end of the name Christian literally means belonging to the party of. So they were the party of Jesus. They belonged to Jesus they called the followers of Caesar. This is just a little thing I'm throwing in. 
I've read this. They called the followers of Caesar Caesareans. And it's the same word that was used for a surgical birth of a child, just like our fourth granddaughter last week. She was born by Caesarea section, okay? But that's the way history believes that Caesar was supposed to have been born. So the name became commonplace as Caesarean section. In other words, a procedure belonging to Caesar. Likewise, they named the Christian, they named the Christ followers Christians. At first, it was a derogatory term, a nickname, but it stuck. And in fact, the early Christians in Antioch, they liked it. And they started calling each other Christian. They wanted to know as I'm a person belonging to Christ. But it was not so much the name of the people as the behavior of the Christians that distinguished them. Take a look at their practices here for just a moment, all right? Acts 11, 19 through 21. Now those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, spreading the word only among Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, they went to Antioch and began speaking to Greeks also. These are Romans, really. These are people of that country, but they were called Greeks because they were influenced by the Greek culture. So they went to speak to the Gentiles, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. So persecution broke out in Jerusalem. A lot of them left Dodge. They went Judea, Samaria, and now they're going to the uttermost parts of the earth. They've gone up the coast to Antioch. And they're not only sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ with Jews, but some of them are stepping over the line and sharing it with Gentiles. And God is blessing that. Gentiles are being saved. And here's the four things they did right, okay? Number one, this church, the members of this church, they evangelized. It was actually a simple process. They were Christians. They traveled. They left Jerusalem and Wherever they went, they met people and they talked about how they had been transformed by the person and the power of Jesus Christ. At first, they just told the Jews, but they were excited about their faith and they eventually started telling everybody and anybody they met. And God blessed their efforts. One by one, Jews and Gentiles started converting to Jesus. And as they converted there in Antioch, they got together and formed a church. And the church of Antioch did what all churches are supposed to do. They evangelized. They simply told others about Jesus. They simply told others how Jesus had changed their lives. That's all they told. That's all that God expects. You see... The gospel of Jesus Christ is not just for the benefit of all those who sit inside these walls. God never intended to keep the Christian message for Christians only inside these walls. Christianity at its very core is an evangelistic religion. We spread the good news of Jesus Christ 
We're convinced that people are going to be better off if they too believe in him. As Christians, we're convinced that the eternal destiny of every person on the face of the earth depends on faith in Jesus Christ. Miss Stam is experiencing the result of her faith this morning for eternity. This type of church I'm speaking of, the type of church Antioch was, always sought to be an evangelistic church. This type of church always talks about Jesus. They provide every possible opportunity for people to hear about Jesus and believe in him. They encourage Christians to seek daily opportunity to share with others how Jesus has changed their lives. They tell how they came to faith in Christ. They weren't perfect. They probably were not as good at evangelism as they wanted to be. But it's a good goal for any church to have, such as Welford. We probably don't measure up to the Antioch standard, but we should really want to be a church that does it right. And in my opinion, that begins with evangelism, of just simply sharing with others what Jesus has done in our lives. Now, I'll say this, evangelism sometimes upsets people. Sometimes it upsets Christians. There are Christians who worry that, well, if I evangelize, something might go wrong. They may ask a question I don't have the answer to. Or there's others that think, shame on them. If you bring outsiders in, we're going to have to compromise things. That's what happened to Jerusalem. When the, uh, the, the leaders in Jerusalem heard about all this evangelism in Antioch, Gentiles were being saved, they decided to send someone, you need to go and check this out, and then come back and report. And you know who they chose? Barnabas. Barnabas, the son of encouragement. Second thing the church did, they discipled. They discipled others. Barnabas was a very good choice. He was positive and he was a godly man. He was sensitive to what God was doing. He saw the church at Antioch with Jews and non-Jews together. He went to the worship services and saw them worshiping Jesus Christ. He saw their lives had been transformed and he was absolutely ecstatic about it. It was true that the church at Antioch was unconventional. It was attracting a different class of people, and it was trying some new ways and new things. But Barnabas was convinced that God was at work in that church, and God was doing things in the lives of people, and God was being glorified. But Barnabas saw this. Evangelism is not enough. These new Christians that were coming into the church, they needed to grow. They needed to learn. They had never read the Bible. They didn't know how to pray. They were ignorant on how to live a good, godly life. They need solid models and effective teachers, but they couldn't be discipled by just anybody. If they were taught by a traditional Jew, their Greek language and culture would be ignored and unappreciated. If they were taught by a Greek instructor, there might not be an adequate understanding of the Old Testament and its rich history. 
Barnabas knew just the right man. He lived nearby in the town of Tarsus, and his name was Saul. He had disappeared for nine years since he went to Jerusalem. He had probably been living in, that, in his hometown of Tarsus. He was a man with two names. He was known by Jews as Saul. The Gentiles would call him Paul. He was bilingual. He was bicultural. He grew up Jewish, but he was educated as a Greek-speaking Roman. He understood both traditions and culture. He was the perfect pastor for that growing new church. Now, there's a valuable lesson for us right here. There's a valuable lesson for you, Welford Baptist. It's about the right fit, okay? Paul was perfect for Antioch, but we know he didn't fit too good in Jerusalem, did he? Peter was great in Jerusalem and later on in Rome at the church there, but he was probably not the right pastor for Antioch. God gifts every one of us differently. And he puts us where our gifts are best suited to do what needs to be done, what he wants done. The same is going to be true for your pastor. Pray for this committee as they seek that God will reveal to them the one he has created and gifted and suited for Welford Baptist Church. Will you do that? Acts 11, 25 and 26 then Barnabas departed for Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church, and they taught a significant number of people. They discipled them. Now, it was in Antioch that the disciples were first called Christians. It takes time to make a disciple. Disciples are learners. They want to learn. Disciples are people who take the next steps in, in the Christian faith and life. They strive to go on to maturity in the faith. They go to classes. They study the Bible. They learn how to evangelize, how to give, how to pray, how to suffer, how to do everything that a Christian does. And the job of the Antioch church it's the same job description for the church today, for you and I today as well, is to make disciples. As a church, as a Christian, we can never be satisfied with non-growing Christians. We always need to keep pushing people to become more like Jesus Romans 8 tells us that is God's plan and his purpose to conform us, to make us, to shape us, into a, to, to, to the life of Jesus Christ. So we always need to be pushing. We must offer teaching and classes and challenges and ministry opportunities and whatever else is needed to, in order to turn unbelievers into Christians and Christians into fully committed disciples of Jesus Christ. Is that a lot? Friends, I want to tell you, the church of Jesus Christ ought to have high expectations. We need to be a, a Christian like Jesus, more like, like him, his life. We can never let up discipling because that's the right thing to do. Thirdly, they gave, okay? This is not a giving sermon, but we're looking at their lifestyle, how the church was structured. 
This is what they did right in their giving. And this, really, they were quite amazing because when a famine occurred and it spread across the Roman Empire, they became concerned, especially for the Christians in Jerusalem, all right? Acts eleven twenty nine through 30 tells us this. The disciples, as each one was able, decided to provide help for the churches and sisters living in Judea. And this they did, and they sent their gift to the elders in Jerusalem by Barnabas and Saul. So in a sense, they proved that they were Christians and demonstrated their discipleship. One, they became Christians. Two, they, they were disciples. And out of their discipleship, they began living the faith. And part of that entails giving. As Christians, they cared about the needs of others. And they generously gave their money to help those involved in the famine far away. Frankly, to be a Christian is to be a giver. Not only of our money, but of our time and effort and all those kind of things. It's almost unimaginable that someone could claim to be a Christian and primarily be a taker and a keeper. Christians give because that's just what Christians do. It's very interesting to note that the Christians in Antioch gave because they set a biblical pattern really about how Christians are to give, okay? First, they decided in advance how much they're going to give, each one. Secondly, they set the numbers according to their ability. We would like to give this much, okay? And then they did it. They gave. And fourth, they pulled all the gifts together. They put all the money in a pot, and they sent it to the, to the needy there in Jerusalem and Judea. Let's read it again. The disciples, each according to his ability, decided to provide help for the brothers living in Judea. And this they did, and they sent their gift to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. Apparently, each of these Christians, and they were fairly new Christians here in the church of Antioch, they set an amount that they could contribute based on their ability. Probably a little higher for those with more money and a little less for those with less money. And then they followed through with their decision, and they pulled it all together, and they turned it over to Barnabas and Saul to take the gift. I like how they said that. The gift, the love gift to the Christians in other places. Basically, I think it's a biblical pattern that many churches follow. Each Christian is asked to decide how much they're going to give to help others and then give it. And from there, the money is pooled and feed the hungry, pay the bills, yeah, uh, help the poor, communicate the gospel, and to please, above all things, Jesus Christ. That's the way they did it in Antioch. And you've been doing it right here, too. Uh, I've seen the reports how you're above the standard of giving of, what, of the budget here. So the church of Antioch did it right. They evangelized, they discipled, they gave. And out of the normal results of doing things right, this is what they did next, and it's the next step, really. If you do those three things, this is what happens. They sent. We're going to move over to Acts 13, the first three verses, and then we're going to be done. Now, in the church in Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manian, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, a little king underneath the Romans, 
and Saul. And while they were worshiping and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on Barnabas and Saul and sent them off. And this was amazing. It's amazing diversity in this highly effective church. Look at the list, all right? Let me share the list with you again. Barnabas was a Jew from Jerusalem. Simeon called Niger apparently was a black man because Niger means black. Lucius of Cyrene was from North Africa. Manian was an aristocrat who grew up with the puppet king, Herod the Tetrarch. And Saul, who's called Paul, who was a Jew by birth, but he received a Greek education and he was a Roman citizen. So there was great diversity in the names that they thought would be good to go. But together, this church was tuned into the Holy Spirit. They listened, and then they obeyed what God called them to do. And God wanted them to see, send two of their very best members to become missionaries. So Paul and Barnabas was anointed. They were confirmed, and they left for a three-year mission trip. And they established churches over a good portion of Asia and even into Europe, and one people to Christ across the Roman provinces there. And the truly effective church gives not only its money, but it gives its people to share the good news of Jesus Christ. God created the church, the church to accomplish his mission in the world. In Ephesians, Paul tells us that in the gospel of Christ, God has made known to us to... uh, to to his eternal plan, to unite all things to himself. In other words, he signed us up to be his agents, his agents in the world, his agents in that plan by telling us we were saved by grace so that we can go out and do good works which God created in advance for us to do. A faithful church will take these words seriously and recognize that they exist for far more than just a Sunday morning service. Going's a good thing, let me tell you. It's biblical. My family and I, we've probably been on 20 or 30 mission trips. We started taking our children when they were two years old up to West Virginia and places like that. We gave our best for Jesus Christ, and that's what God expects. If you haven't been on a mission trip, and Welford Baptist has areas in which they're connected that they go from time to time, you need to sign up and go. I want to tell you that will do more for your faith than just about anything else there is to experience missions, to help another little church, whatever it may be. To see God doing great things and how God loves the whole world and reaches out to them. The Antioch Church did it right. And it's no wonder, I think, that their their story is in the Bible, in the book of Acts. But what is a church? Let me ask that in closing. It's not a building, really. The, The church in Antioch, they didn't have a church building. They had to meet in members' homes. It wasn't a denomination because they didn't have denominations back then. It's not an organization either. 
It's people. It's me and you. And Christians are people. And churches, churches are effective or or ineffective, just depending. They're either significant or insignificant, godly or ungodly, all because of the people that make up the church. The Antioch church was long ago and far away. Today, you and I are the church for our generation. And it's up to each one of us and all of us together to be and to do what God wants us to be and to do for his son, Jesus Christ. I pray we'll always do it right, that we'll get it right, evangelizing, discipling, giving, and going all for the Lord Jesus Christ. I heard this little thing on the radio, Christian radio, this past week. A mom had two apples. She got her little toddler and said, "Uh, I have two apples. Choose the one that you want. So the toddler took one apple and bit it, chewed it up, reached out and took the other apple and bit it and chewed it up. And the mom was a little bit disappointed, you know, that her her daughter would do something like that. And then the daughter lifted up one apple and said, here, mom, this is yours. You take the sweeter one. That's what God has given us. Here's your church. Here's your opportunity. Here's your, here's your, here's your door that's open for you to become more like Jesus. Choose the sweeter one. Be like him. Father, thank you for the day. Thank you, Lord, for the church in Antioch. And again, I know they're not perfect, but they got a lot of things right. They got the essential things right. I thank you for Welford. Lord, they're striving to do things right too. Continue blessing and helping them and the new pastor that you'll one day bring. But until then, God, we're still the church. You still called us to do these things. Lord, to be a Christian, a follower of Jesus, and to be proud of that name. To share, to evangelize, to learn, to grow, to be discipled. Lord, to give, to help others. And Lord, to go, whether it's just down the street or next door or or place where we work, whatever it may be that you'll provide an opportunity to share someone how Jesus has made a difference in our lives. Father, there's a lot of needs here today. I pray, first of all, you'll bless the family of Lib Stam, bless them and comfort them. But for us here inside the walls today, God, I pray your Holy Spirit, well, I know he spoke. He has a, a, a word for each of us. I pray we listen. And whatever change that you want to make in our lives, I pray we'll be open to it. So bless this time now of decision in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. For more information about our church, visit welfarechurch.org. Blessings.